This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Thank you, Scott, for that generous introduction. I'm delighted to have the opportunity to give the 120th UCLA Research Lecture. UCLA is the youngest and in many ways the most vibrant of the world's great universities. And as I watched people come in here, I see so many of you who have contributed to the rise of this university, including Chuck Young, who led this as chancellor for so many years. More than 30 years ago, I was invited to be the after-dinner speaker on human memory for the Harvard Ratcliffe Club of Southern California. It's a nice event at a resort in Santa Barbara, so Elizabeth and I decided it'd be fun to have our two young sons join us. So before the banquet, uh, we went to see what the room was like. At one point, Elizabeth and I heard the microphone turn on, and our older son, Olin, about eight years old then, was at the podium doing an imitation of his father. And he said, ladies and gentlemen, the memory is in the brain. The brain is in the head. Any questions? I later went on for about an hour saying more or less the same thing. Uh, Actually, the truth is we have learned a lot as a consequence of behavioral research, research in the human brain, that have fleshed out the picture of the kind of functional architecture of how humans learn and remember. What's very new, though, since that time is research on metacognition and metamemory. What do people believe and think about how their memory works? What sort of judgments do they make about how to learn, whether they've learned, and so on? That's a burgeoning field that started about 30 years ago. And that has to do with the how we think we learn. Now before I get more on the story, I just want some, to do some thank yous quickly. Uh, funding over the years, uh, students, postdoctoral fellows, visiting scholars who have enriched my life at Michigan first, but then so many at UCLA. Mentors, colleagues have been incredibly important, particularly my UCLA colleagues, and among those colleagues, especially uh, my wife and colleague, Elizabeth Bjork. So the human memory is characterized by what I refer to as a remarkable symbiosis of forgetting, learning, and remembering. So forgetting, in contrast to what we might tend to think, where we might think that learning is building up something in memory, forgetting is losing some of what you built up, actually forgetting enables learning and it focuses remembering. Remembering, using our memories, creates learning, as I'll talk about in a minute. Uh, One of the keys to effective learning is to retrieve information, which not only... reveals that it's in your memory, but makes it much more accessible in the future. And it produces forgetting. As we 
retrieve some things, we tend to forget things that are in competition with that. And learning, of course, begets remembering. It, though, contributes to forgetting, but it also enables new learning. It's a remarkable system, but equally remarkable is it seems poorly understood by its users. That is, all of us. We seem to carry around a kind of flawed mental model of how the system works, how we learn and remember. Our judgments of whether we learned and will remember are unreliable. We're subject to illusions of comprehension. Uh, students are familiar with that, where they think they're very well prepared before some exam. We manage the decisions we make about managing our own learning are far from optimal. Students, for example, go into a kind of court stenographer mode taking notes, and that suppresses learning rather than creates learning. <clears throat> and these misunderstandings are coupled with some counterproductive attitudes and assumptions that are prevalent in the society. I'll turn to those uh, at the end. What's very surprising and keeps me fascinated about all this is we have a lifetime of learning starting early on, and why wouldn't we, just by the trials and errors of everyday living learning, learn how the system works, but we don't seem to learn? I could spend the rest of this talk showing these sort of slides, where what's plotted here in some different experiments is the effect of something or other on actual learning in some case, different experiments, different tasks. There's the effect in... I've got one graph wrong here, but um, in any case, showing actual learning and then in various ways having people judge whether they've learned, choose some one way to learn or not, you can see that there's a complete contrast. People remarkably misunderstand their own learning. So why would this be? Well, one factor is that the whole human learning memory system works in sort of a strange way. It's characterized by what Elizabeth and I called important peculiarities. They're peculiarities because they're aspects of human memory that make it very unlike any normal man-made recording device. They're important because they have a lot to do with our using of the system. For one thing, a remarkable capacity for storing information that's virtually infinite is coupled, as we're all well aware, with a highly fallible retrieval process. Enormous amount can and is stored, but we're all experienced that only some of it's available at any one time. And what's available is determined heavily by just current environmental cues, interpersonal cues, emotional body state cues, what this does do is help us make most recallable what is most needed in our current state. Retrieving information from memory is far different than simply reading that information out. It alters the subsequent state of the system every time you recall something. It makes that information more recallable in the future, things in competition with it less recallable. And as I've already alluded to, conditions that uh, produce forgetting rather than undoing learning, create opportunities for additional learning. Yesterday in my email, I got this message from a brain doctor. 
it said, eat this, never forget a single thing. I can't actually tell you what it is because this was in my spam folder. I was afraid to open it up. (laughs) But you actually, if it worked, you would not want to eat this thing because as was pointed out by the great William James in the late 1800s, forgetting is a crucial in the practical use of our memory is as important as remembering. And if we remembered everything, if every phone number you ever had, every street address you ever, every event were memorable and in competition with each other, you would have a difficult time using your memory successfully. Now, some of the positive features of memory were, of forgetting from memory, were some of the earliest work I did, all the way back to being a graduate student. And that, together with work on learning, was... Uh, Celebrated in a Festschrift volume organized by uh, former students and colleagues. They managed to find this uh, picture from an article in Wired magazine. But uh, this was put together and organized by Aaron Benjamin, one of my UCLA students who's now uh, prominent. He's at the University of Illinois as a professor there. And when I gave a talk at Illinois, similar to this one, I both thanked Aaron publicly, but I also raised this little question for this audience, which was, I noticed that Robert A. Bjork's in kind of small font here. (laughs) And like Aaron Benjamin's in large font. So I asked him this. And for those of you who know Aaron, you'll appreciate his remark. He said, I should have seen the first version. It had his picture, too. (laughs) (laughs) So among the things that contribute to our not understanding uh, how to learn, how to manage our own learnings, is this kind of problem we confront, which is that conditions of instruction or practice that make performance improve rapidly often fail to support long-term attention transfer, whereas conditions of instruction that appear to create difficulties for the learner, slowing the rate of apparent learning, often optimize long-term retention transfer. I've come to call the conditions in that latter category desirable difficulties. They're desirable because they enhance the very goal of studying and practice, They're difficulties because they pose challenges. They slow the rate of increase of performance. One of those is varying the conditions of learning rather than keeping them constant and predictable. Another one is distributing or spacing practice sessions rather than massing or blocking those sessions. Using tests rather than presentations as learning events. And providing contextual interference during learning. What contextual interference refers to is if in some domain of knowledge or some domain of skills, there's interference between possible components of that knowledge or skill. Then it turns out if you arrange practice conditions, learning conditions, to maximize that possible interference, you'll slow the rate of improvement but enhance and sometimes greatly enhance long-term learning. This is a broad 
kind of category, I'm going to talk about one case, interleaving rather than blocking. So if you're learning several things, uh, deciding you're going to play tennis and getting instructed in tennis, typically if you go there, they'll work on your forehand for a while and then your backhand for a while and then your serve. This work says you should intermix those things in a random way and people will appear to be making slower progress, but then we'll learn better. <clears throat> I always have to emphasize the word of desirables, important. Um, some early talks I give in this, I would have some aging professors come up and say, you know, I've made things hard on my students for years, and now you tell me it's a good thing. Uh, it matters how you make it hard. <clears throat> They're desirable because responding to them engages the very processes that support comprehension, learning, remembering. They become undesirable difficulties if the learner is not equipped. So, for example, one thing we should all do as parents, as teachers, whatever, whenever we're teaching somebody and we can give some minimal information and have that person generate an answer, generate a solution, generate a procedure, they will remember it far longer than if we just give it to them or present it to them. So, but they have to be able to succeed at the generation. Okay, so varying the condition of learning, two quick examples. The first is one of my favorite studies actually done in a recreation park. It involved two age groups, eight-year-olds and 12-year-olds. And here's what the basic task the researchers gave these kids were. They were in a kneeling position. There was a box of sort of miniature bean bags, and there was a target, a black four by four square on the floor at a certain distance, and they were to grab one of these and try to land it on the square. Pretty simple, except that each time before they threw a screen game down, stopped their vision. And then they could look and see how they did. The interesting manipulation is for both groups. One group did all their practice at one distance. Let's focus on the eight-year-olds, three-foot distance in their case. The varied group had the same number of practice throws, but at a mixture of two feet and four feet, never three feet. Then after the training period, I won't show you those results because it's sort of obvious the people throwing at constant distance did better. Uh, a final test a week or so later was at the criterion distance. Namely, it was at the three-foot distance the eight-year-olds practiced, and meaning it was at a distance that that group never practiced. So what I'm showing you now is the errors measured from the center of the target in inches for the two age groups. That's the performance for the group that practiced at that very distance. And there is a group that never practiced at that distance, but always practiced a foot shorter, a foot longer, a mixture. So how can this be? It would seem like we'd always want people to practice at the very conditions they're going to be tested in. And I'll let you kind of ponder what possible advantage it is, but I'll just say skills are kind of motor schemas, and when you are having to just distance, you exercise parameters of that, and that's worth more than the specific practice. When I heard about these results and started to do related research, 
Shaquille O'Neal was on the Lakers and he couldn't make free throws. And so I actually started writing a letter to the Lakers saying, maybe if you have him practice at a mixture of 14 feet and 16 feet, not always 15 feet, it'd do better. I didn't send that letter, but then it turned out I was quoted in Time magazine after talking to a reporter with that suggestion. And I don't think the Lakers took advantage of it. (laughs) Or the Clippers, for that matter, with DeAndre Jordan. Now, as far as variation, even varying the environmental context can have benefits. This is a study we did years ago at Michigan. We had people come to one. There was two very different rooms. One was a panel seminar room. One was a basement room in the, in the animal laboratories that had a faint smell of uh, old rat cages and so on. We made them as different as we could. And a given participant studied the material in one of the two. Three hours later, came back and studied it again, either in the same place or a different place. Three hours later, they came to a big classroom like this, and they were tested. Now, not surprisingly... When people are put back in the very same place they studied, they perform a bit better. But half the time, for half the participants, instead of having them tested them, we let them restudy the material, as I mentioned, and then tested them later. Now the people that studied it in two different rooms actually produce better recall. This is only one instance where something that produces forgetting, here a change of context, then actually enhances um, later recall. This result is interesting because if you are a student on this and other campuses, I I haven't looked at recently, but almost any campus, if you pick up some little how-to-study guide, what's one piece of advice? Find one good place to study in the library, whatever, do all your studying there. It might help you to get you to study, but it will not enhance long-term recall. Now, the spacing. Distributing rather than massing repeated study sessions. This research is called the spacing effect. It's one of the most robust of all effects on experimental research on learning. Traces back 130 years. And what it refers to is that if I'm going to study something multiple times, and I could study it, and then decide, study it again, study it again. Or I could study it, go on and do other activities of some kind, come back and study it, go away and come back, study it. This would be the spacing case. And then if at a delay I'm tested, there's a benefit of spacing your study opportunities. Notice again, incidentally, that forgetting happens in these intervals, but nonetheless the forgetting enhances learning there. These effects are very general in research with animals, humans, in skills, verbal knowledge, and sometimes a very large effect. But it's a little bit more complicated picture in that if the retention interval is very short, basically right away, what we tend to find then is a slight advantage for the massing. This corresponds to what? the way a lot of us got through school, cramming. And it actually will produce good performance on that test. 
I used to talk a lot in the freshman dorms about how to study, and I always get asked this question, my mother says I should get my sleep. It was always their mother, not their father. I'm quite an, uh, but I, I'm sorry to contradict your dear sweet mother, but if it's midnight, you don't know the material, you won't make something out of nothing overnight. <clears throat> but in any case, the problem then is forgetting after mass study is very, very rapid. And there's many experimental demonstrations of it. This is one recent one with mathematics learning, basically, where kids are cramming, doing all the problems here, or doing some there, wake a week, do others. And you can see at the shorter delay, there's an advantage for this cramming. But then at a four-week test, a large advantage for the spacing. The second thing... There's many of these studies. This one has kind of an interesting wrinkle because one of the first to ask people to rate their instruction. This study was done by researchers. At the time, the British postal system was changing to new codes, which had to be entered on a special machine and involved training lots of postal workers. And they asked Alan Baddeley and, and the students working with him to carry out some experiments on how to conduct the training. And one of the things they did was a simple spacing manipulation. Uh, one group of postal workers got one hour of practice once a day, another got one hour twice a day, another got two hours once a day, another got two hours twice a day. So this is the most massed, this is the most spaced, these are in between. Now it's a very nice replication of spacing effects because hours to learned the keyboard, showed this nice relationship that this was the most efficient schedule, the space, the least efficient, there was the most masked, the others in between. But at the very end, they asked the postal workers to rate their satisfaction with their training from one very satisfactory to, one very un to five very unsatisfactory. And looking at that, you can see that people that had the most efficient schedule liked at least the least efficient schedule liked it both best. Now, using tests rather than presentations as learning events. It's crucial, given that testing's got a bad word, it's, it's such a bad word that when I talk to some audiences, I switch to the phrase retrieval practice rather than testing. <laughs> and retrieving, in, it, there, there are three virtues of tests from a pedagogical standpoint. Very important virtues. One is retrieving information or procedures, as I've alluded to, is what I called a memory modifier. The information you recall becomes more recallable than would have been otherwise. As a learning event, it's more recallable than being presented that information. I say this inflatable life fest example. This is, this is a story where I'd rushed to an airplane some years ago and again, they were trying to show me how to put on the, on the vest. And I thought, oh, how many times have I seen this? So I kind of relaxed in my seat. I imagined that the plane was down in the water. Those lights were on. There were a few people screaming. There was some faint hint of smoke. Do I know how to do this? So where is that life preserver? Well, it's under your seat, but like, how under your seat? I mean, I started to get panicked, like, is it hanging there? Is it in a Velcro package? It's whatever. So then I imagined that I, I got this out, and, and what do you do? I, it's obvious to, this, 
to the flight attendant, which is front and back, but was that going to be obvious to me? Anyway, I assumed I got it on and pulled these things. Then what do you do after that? I don't want to be on a plane with a lot of you, I don't think. Uh, anyway, you try to pull this cord to inflate, and if that doesn't work, what? Then you find this tube and blow it. And I assumed I did that and then got to the window, and at least at that time, you were supposed to blow it up after you got out the window. But as I once said in a talk at the Air Traffic Control Center in Oklahoma City, if there was one place in the airport where a single time you could do it, just find it, put it on, do it, go out, that would be worth more than these hundreds of exposures. We're not sort of just recording devices. I even suggested... You might have people to give them a little pin. I know how to get out of the plane. So other, and then other information that's in competition, there's a whole domain of research on what's called retrieval-induced forgetting that I won't be able to touch on. And the basic point is that as we use our memories, we alter or shape our memories in important and useful ways. The second virtue is testing provides far better feedback to what's been learned than does restudying. If you're a student preparing for a midterm exam and trying to scan the material to see what you still need to study, when the material's right there in front of you, you will be, your ability to judge whether you'd be able to recall it is very flawed, very inaccurate. If you're with another student asking each other questions and trying to produce answers, you'll get an accurate measure of what you know and understand. The third thing, this is the most recent line of this kind of research, testing, it turns out, potentiates subsequent studying. Even if you test people before they've had the material, which is something Elizabeth did in one of the courses she teaches, and they're mostly wrong at everything, after that, they study more efficiently. Three important benefits of Retrieval practice. One example, the power of tests versus presentations. In this experiment, the participants studied a to-be-learned passage. It actually had to do with information on the sun or it had information about the lives of sea otters. They got one or the other. Two, two different groups are of particular interest. One of these just kept studying it over and over again, that passage. That's this SSS group, consecutive five-minute periods. The other group studied it once and then tried four times to recall. And notice, after they recall, there's no feedback of what they got right or what they got wrong. So this diagrams it. <clears throat> and among other things, the group that repeatedly studied it managed to go over this thing, highlighting, doing whatever they wanted, 14.2 times. The group that read it only once, 3.4. But then again, they tried recalling it. So they would recall as much as they could for five minutes. The sheet was taken away, and they were told, try again. So they did that three times. Now, what happens at five minutes, it looks like repeated studying. All those exposures led to better recall. But when they tested people at a week, all this turns around. In the case where they read it only once, but tried to recall it three times, is better. 
again, on the sort of metacognition side, they also asked people at the end of the study phase, how much will you remember in one week's time? There's the actual results. That's what they said. So we're, we're shaped to think that studying is the best thing to do. Overall tests potentiate subsequent recall. But what about failed tests? Suppose you produce errors. Maybe that makes those errors more likely to be remembered. And you can see things like this. This was sent to the, on the internet a while ago. It brings up some considerations I hadn't even thought of, namely that you may trigger emotional and aggressive behavior and put your career at risk if you produce errors. And you don't want people to establish an error history. Well, this has now been looked at at different levels, and it actually looks like making errors is a critical component of effective learning. I'm going to show you a simple procedure that we came up with, but these kind of results are duplicated in more substantial cases. In this procedure, subjects are learning many pairs. But for half the pairs, and they, they know they're going to be associated, a cue like this, and they know the response is going to be associated, in half the pairs, they have to try to predict what the associate's going to be. And I don't know, you might predict big, ocean, whatever, but then you see that the correct thing is mammal. And that's what you'll need to recall later when you're given that particular cue. Participants studied lots of these pairs, half of them that way, half of them, they just see it intact and have 13 seconds. So in one case, they spent eight of the 13 seconds coming up with a different response, and I should clarify that. We selected these pairs so only, so 97% of the time people are wrong. They come up with something else. So you spend eight seconds coming up with a different thing than five seconds versus studying the right thing the whole time. And there, for four different experiments, is the results. Generating the wrong thing and then seeing the correct answer leads to better recall. Now, this is, this is a topic of current research, but one of the interpretations of this is that when I see whammel, whammel when I see... Maybe that would be a way to encode that pair. When I see whale, it activates that semantic network, and I come up with ocean large, maybe even that it's a mammal, not a fish. That activation appears then to facilitate associating the new response. That's, as I said, this is very active. The basic effect has been replicated many times, including in this study at, at Columbia University, or they repeated our procedure, but then they asked the participants uh, which helped you remember better, and they said being able to read the pair the whole time rather than generate an error first. This is even after the final test on which they've performed better on the pairs where they tried to generate the answer first. Okay, this topic, um, particular interleaving rather than blocking, is a new domain, and the implications are really pretty striking. 
And we're doing research now trying to see how far do some of these kind of results extend. But it all started with two graduate students in kinesiology at the University of Colorado who built this little apparatus. And on using this apparatus, the participants had to learn three different movement patterns. Each pattern, they would release this start button, pick up this tennis ball, knock over three of these hinged barriers in some order and put it there. Do that as fast as they can. They had to learn three different patterns. Each of one involved knocking down a different sequence of three of those barriers. Now, in one case, they got 18 trials in a row on one of those patterns, then 18 on the third, then 18, then 18 the second, 18 the third, in the other case, they got the same 54 trials, 18 on each, but which had to be executed on a given trial was determined randomly and shown by those lights. In any case, if you just look at down is good here, they're getting faster and faster. If you just look at performance during there, blocking is better. The difference gets smaller, but blocking appears to stay better the whole time. That would be consistent with the fact that blocking is everywhere in the real world. And that's what people involved in training and so on would tend to see. However, 10 days later when they tested people, they either tested them under random conditions. And you can see under random conditions, the people who had the random training perform at about the same level. People that blocked looked like they didn't even learn anything yet. And when they tested them under block conditions, even what little advantage there is favors the random training. So again, this has major implications. How far can it be pushed? In the domain of skills, it again has the potential for leading you to misinterpret your current performance as learning. So we replicated that sort of experiment using uh, keystroke patterns that had to be executed in a certain target time. Uh, the day two, there was a criterion test. The new feature is that periodically, we asked people to predict how well they were going to do on the day two test. A few times during the training and then right before the day two test, we also asked them. You can see here, Again, down is good. This just replicates the pattern that Shea and Morgan had with a different task. And it replicates the fact that a day later, this condition that doesn't look as good, the random interleaved, the block that looks better is worse a day later, and you're better with interleave. But what did people predict? Basically, they predicted the opposite. People who had the block practice they were going to perform better than the people who had the interleave practice thought they would. So this now, one of the things that would be good for you to take away from this lecture is there's a fundamental distinction that has a kind of time-honored in research on human learning, and that's the distinction between learning and performance. At any one time, what we can observe is performance which may be a product of local conditions and other things, what we're forced to infer is learning. 
as it will be manifested later in another context or at a delay. And current performance turns out to be very unreliable indicator. That makes us vulnerable to choosing poorer conditions of practice or learning over better conditions. And this just replots those uh, Simon and Bjork results. The advantage of interleaving has been shown now with many other skills. Uh, the serves in Batman, uh, uh, pitching, kayaking, using different ATM machines, even handwriting, children's handwriting. Here I have to show you a little example. This is from a penmanship booklet. If you're beyond a certain age, you may recognize this. This is part of fundamental education way back. And those of us of that age had to do many hours of this and also practice cursive, which may be disappearing altogether. But notice the designers of this probably didn't give much thought. It seemed like obvious how to do it. Notice the child here, little diagram. They have to make one W, another W, another W, a fourth W, nine W's, then a bunch of X's, then a bunch of Y's, then Z's. What sort of practice? Blocked practice. Didn't probably occur to them to do differently, but it did occur to these researchers to carry an experiment where they did compare this with one that alternated the letters. And they found big benefits for the alternation, particularly if the final task involved writing in which you alternated letters. And you might think about that a bit because you don't have a, you don't have a lot of need in normal writing to make nine W's in a row. <clears throat> I sometimes claim that people of my era are kind of doubly punished. We had to spend some hours doing this and then about 30 years later had to read papers from students who didn't have to do it. <clears throat> now it turns out a newer direction is these were all kind of skill learning is in kind of verbal conceptual learning as well. There's new indications that interleaving uh, has benefits as well. <clears throat> this is study done by a colleague, Douglas Rohr, at the University of South Florida. The participants here had to learn these formulas for things like a wedge, a spheroid, half cone. So they worked many problems with these with different dimensions as part of learning those formulas. And the manipulation was that they worked the same number of problems, but some participants had a mixture of working on the different ones. The other ones did all the problems of one on one solid, then all the problems on another, and so on. And a week after the second practice session like this, they were tested. <clears throat> and notice right away, at the end of practice, it looks like blocked was better. But a week later, there's a three-to-one advantage for interleaving. A really interesting story having to do with this paper. It was rejected by four educational journals without review in a couple cases. It's now heavily cited. It's been replicated. It's viewed as important once it got accepted by the fifth journal. And you might wonder, 
with all this expenditure of money to try to increase educational outcomes in the public schools, here's something that made a simple thing made a three-to-one difference. But I think editors and reviewers of those journals, this is maybe plain clinical psychologist too much or something, but uh, this is not something those people are doing in their own teaching. It's hard to believe the size of these effects. So some of these things just take um, an open mind, so to speak, in the sense that they run so much against prevailing practices. If they're mathematics problems, but they're kind of unrelated, this shows some kinds of things students could be given. And in this experiment, they compared mostly interleave practice, mostly Bach practice. Then there was a final review, and that appears to have been automated. Um, a final review, and whether at one day or 30 days, this case with interleave practice produces better performance on this uh, surprise test. <clears throat> Not too long ago, got this email from William Enemy, who, um, I said Emony, didn't I? Not Enemy. Okay. A teacher in England who's done a series of wonderful things. But he said, after learning about this, in particular space and interleaving, I started trying to put them into practice. I did this in a number of ways. And then he says, first, I realized we did interleaving as a standard practice, but only during the last six months of the course. I wanted to check the impact of this, and so I looked at our assessment data. We look at them three times per year. And so this led to the graph referred to in my email, which shows the impact of the interleaving. So that's blocking up to that point, and then the last six months is interleaving. This is not a controlled experiment, but on the other hand, it's done in actual classrooms. Now, optimizing inductive learning. This is a crucial kind of learning in which you extract a concept or category from, induce it from examples. So this might be a matter of trying to, from these, learning to categorize some sort of uh, malignancy or possible problem. Another kind of thing, and I show this because we use these materials in an experiment I'm about to tell you about, is we might develop an image of a painter's style from different paintings by that person. You might be traveling in Europe somewhere and be able to say that a certain painting is by Rubens, even though you haven't seen that painting before. This is inducing categories and concepts from examples. Just to give you one a uh, little exercise here. Suppose I tell you that's a Gen 2 penguin. That's a Gen 2 penguin. That's a Gen 2. <clears throat> that's a Gen 2. Where's the Gen 2? I can't see anybody, so... but Oh, I think I see somebody pointing up there. Now, notice I did not show you that picture. <clears throat> you, you extracted some commonalities from the others that let you be right there. And we, in this case, a postdoc who's now teaching Williams College, Nate Cornell and I decided, this has to be one case where blocking, massing, is advantageous. And the argument was that when they're together like this, like you had them, you can see the features that sort of define the category. Maybe, for example, this little white band up here. 
Whereas interleaving or spacing makes that very difficult to do. You see a Gen 2 here, then a Lachesis, then a Reinhardt, then a Gen 2. And thinking back here to what's common is more difficult. I think I have put an extra slide in here, get rid of that. So we had people learn the styles of 12 different paintings, painters by seeing six examples of each painter's paintings. Half of those, six of the artists, the participants saw their paintings one after another in a row, blocked practice. The other half, they saw them interleaved with the paintings by the other artists. And I'm going to give you a feeling for this by just showing you an example. This, this would be an example of a mass block. That's a painting by Lewis. Another one by Lewis. Another one by Lewis. Are you getting Lewis's style now? Another one by Lewis. Another one by Lewis. They weren't selected to be good artists. <laughs> Another one by Lewis. So in an interleave block, on the other hand, you'd see the six individual paintings by a given artist intermixed with paintings for the other artists, and it would be like seeing that there's a Pisani, there's a Wexler, there's a Schlorf, there's a Strachulat, Hawkins, Milrea, so anyway, they go through those 72 paintings. What, uh, this would be a sample of what the first 24 would be like. And then on the final test, they see completely new paintings. And they have to say, pick who painted that new painting. That's the test. They haven't seen those before. They have to extract the style of a given painter and say who painted it. Again, we were expecting this is one case where blocking, massing should help, and this is the results we got. Researchers are often not as smart as we think we are. And this now has been replicated with many, learning many other categories. Butterflies, birds, novel objects, women's voices, uh, statistical rules, a whole bunch of things. Now what had made this research have a big impact is something we kind of threw in almost as an afterthought. After they were tested, and on this test had done better with the artists that were interleaved, we asked them this question. Which do you think helped you learn more, masked or spaced? And they could say masked about the same as spaced. Now these are the actual results over here. And that's what they said. Now, this has been replicated many times, and actually, Dr. Veronica Yan, who's here somewhere in our lab, has been trying to explore what sort of experience do we have to give people, what sort of instruction would lead them to come to realize the benefits of interleaving. One of the early things she tried was she ran this same sort of experiment, but right before she asked them this question, they were told... 90% of learners do as good or better with interleaving. What she found was that 80% of people think they're in the other 10%. <laughs> you 
It's really compelling, and I won't go into all interpretations, but what it does look like, just in general, that interleaving highlights a difference in relationships, and that may be worth more with respect to the final test than seeing the commonalities. Why is that judgment so difficult to overcome? Well, one reason, among others, is blocking provides a sense of fluency. That's why I showed you a sample, actually. Whereas interleaving provides a kind of sense of confusion or difficulty. The participants actually come to the experiment thinking that blocking's better. Why would they? They've had blocking their whole educational life. Every teacher they've had has tried to be well organized in the course outline or syllabus by blocking things in a clear way. Recent evidence for this is in this experiment done at Kent State University. They're learning uh, families of birds. And here they gave the participants control over it. So these were the, this is just a sample of the kind of pictures they got of the birds. Here would be three different J's over trials. But they would get it. You've just studied a J. Click on the bird family you'd like to study next. So they could ask for another J, a finch, a sparrow, whatever. Overwhelmingly, they exhaust the J category. Basically, they give themselves block practice when it's under their control. Maybe older adults, maybe there's something about blocking older adults with these. So we looked at this uh, in a study at UCLA. In one case, the, the people studied the same uh, artist, the same picture over and over again. Another case, uh, four different. But in any case, then later, the older adults, there was an advantage for spacing with the same picture being shown over again, an advantage for the induction test. This just replicates the effect I've already showed you. They actually had mixed feelings about seeing the same picture over and over again here. But again, when it, the task was the induction, induction task, they too thought massing was far better. Then there's a the question, well, what about kids? There's a critical role in kids coming to organize and learn about the rule, this kind of categorization. They're amazing at it. Their parents tell them something like, this little thing is a boat or a ship. That is the plastic thing in their bathtub's a boat. Uh, this thing's a boat down at the harbor. That's a boat. And somehow kids extract the commonalities and come up with this concept. So in research in our developmental area here, um, Haley Vlock and Catherine Sandoffer had them learn categories of novel objects. So they would be told... Like the thing on the left is a wug, in the middle is a blicket, and the last is a dax. So in one case, they would say, look at this, and they'd be handed this thing for 10 seconds. Look at the wug. Then they're handed another one. Look at the wug. Then another one. Look at the wug. The other case was just like this, except each time between seeing wugs, they played with a novel object. This was to introduce spacing. Then finally, they say, can you hand me the wug? One of them's the wug. One's something they don't know the name of, cat. 
One was this object they played with, and one was novel. So this just recaptures the design. I'll just quickly show you the results. Basically, whether, again, it was a memory task or an induction task, you were better to have this spaced learning, which you might have thought would produce forgetting. So what do students already know and not know about how to study? We decided to take a look by doing a little survey of 472 intro psych students. Questions like this. How do you decide what to study next? Whatever is 59%, whatever is due soon is most overdue. 4%, whatever I haven't studied for the longest time, that would be what? Spacing, that would be a good thing. Whatever I find interesting doesn't matter. 22%. Whatever I feel I'm doing worst in. And then 11%, I plan my study schedules ahead of time and I study whatever I've scheduled. They're actually liars. <laughs> another question. If you quiz yourself while you study one way or another, why do you do it? Here they show some, a bit of an insight. They don't know that it's a learning activity to produce things. That Retrieval will be a learning activity. They do know that tests can help you identify what you've learned and not learned. These people, very few, like quizzing. <clears throat> and these 9% that don't quiz themselves are probably in trouble one way or another. Uh, do you usually return to the course material? This would be a very good thing to do in terms of long-term spacing effects. 86% no. Uh, when you study, you typically read an article, other source material, more than once. Um, yes, I reread whole chapters, articles. 60% I reread sections I underline or highlighted or marked, not the original one. Not usually. Would you say, and this is interesting, would you say that you study the way you do because somebody taught you to do that? This is on two accounts. First of all, the 20, we don't know what the 20% who answered yes, what were they taught? Probably to study in one place and focus on one thing at a time and so on. But 86% no. They just based, developed some habits somehow, and that's what they do. We worry at the university whether students are prepared in certain math topics, English proficiency, we don't actually tend to worry whether they're equipped in terms of learning skills to cope with these four or five more years of intensive learning. Now, what are the implications of these desirable difficulties for uh, how we would organize our courses as teachers? And we could spend a long time there thinking how we might change our courses this way, how we might incorporate. They would be quite different courses. But what are the implications for the evaluation, students' evaluation of instruction? Students expect to be taught the way they've been taught. What's going to be the reactions to the immediate consequences of desirable difficulties, which is sort of worse performance? I've sometimes said that if you gave me, a, after all these years of research and teaching, you give me a new course to teach, and you tell me, do everything you know how to do 
So six months after the course has ended, students will have a maximal memory for the key concepts. I feel like I know how to do that. If you told me, do everything you have learned how to do to get the highest possible student evaluations, I feel like I know how to do that. Unfortunately, they would be very different courses. Concluding comments. Um, there's some general attitudes and assumptions that make it difficult to optimize learning. One of those is errors and mistakes need to be viewed as opportunity for learning. You should be willing to make them. Whereas often they're refuted to just reflect inadequacies of the learner, the teacher, or maybe both. Differences in performance are attributed to innate differences in ability. There's an underappreciation of the power of training, practice, and experience. Some of you may know there's an important domain of work on people having either a fixed or growth mindset and all the benefits of having a growth mindset rather than a fixed mindset. There's also a prevailing idea that efficient learning is easy learning. If somebody will just present something to me in a way that fits with my style of learning, I won't really have to engage in much effort. It will just sort of happen. We did a review, four of us, of research on the very popular styles of learning idea and could find no support for that notion. Basically, individual differences matter, and they matter in a crucial way, because new learning builds on, depends on old learning. Our family cultural histories affect greatly motivation to learn, degree to which learning is valued, aspirations, and so on. One example of this little experiment we carried out years ago in terms of individual differences, we got wondering about this. Which is optimal? Doing the readings, then go to lecture, or lecture, then readings. What are students told? Students are told that, and we did a preliminary survey where we asked them which is more effective. Two-thirds say, do the text, then the lecture. What do you do? Two-thirds do the lecture, then the text. <laughs> which is more difficult? Uh, people say, doing the text, then the lecture. So we carried on an experiment. I won't get into detail. It was, had to do with material on one one thing had to do with brain aphasias, and other things had to do with real estate law, new material to the participants. And they either read the text and saw a video, or they saw a video, then read the text. And what we found overall, sorry, is that there was no significant difference. But whether your language, first language, was English mattered. Which way do you think it mattered? If English was not your first language, then reading the text better was better. First was better. Otherwise, if it was, going to the lecture first was better. So the bottom line is individual differences matter. Uh, optimizing learning teaching rests on what we all share, a unique functional architecture as learners, a remarkable capacity to learn, and one more little comment. The importance of avoiding egocentrism in social communication. What this refers to is we're all vulnerable 
to overestimating how much what we are saying our students, friends, and colleagues actually understand. And this leads me to conclude with one of my all-time favorite experiments carried out as a doctoral dissertation at Stanford University. And what Newton did is the participants were either tappers or listeners. If you were a tapper, you got a sheet of, with 30 familiar melodies. Pick any one you want and tap it out. So it might be... If, ooh, uh, if, you were a, if you were a listener, you didn't have a sheet of paper, but you um, then tried to identify what that tune was. And then the tappers predicted the likelihood the listeners would succeed. And over all of the tappers, just almost exactly half the time they thought the listener would get it, Here's what the listeners actually got. So I try to remind myself, I refer to this study as sort of a, a parable of teaching. As teachers, we're so... Oh, incidentally, what did I tap out? Wow, that's the highest response rate. That's correct. It's usually zero. Well, I must have done a little better. Uh, but in any case, uh, when I tapped it out, what was happening in my head? Jingle bells, jingle bells, music, lyrics, what were you getting? This is analogous to what happens when we're teaching often. We're going, the music, the lyrics are in our head, how wonderful this is. And what the students are getting is blah, 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 blah. And in 1962, a giant of developmental psychologists made basically this point. Every beginning instructor discovers sooner or later that his first lecture is incomprehensible. He was talking to himself, so to say, mindful only of his point of view. Reels only gradually with difficult. It's not easy to place oneself in the shoes of students who do not yet know about the subject matter of the course. I can only thank you and hope I didn't illustrate that excessively. Thank you very much. <clears throat> You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.